It's late at night, and we are waiting with eyes cast skyward with the rest of the people of our city for the stars to come into the right alignment for the festival to begin. Throughout the day, we have been observant of this crucial time. It's the Mayan New Year's Eve, and the completion of the 52-year life cycle was about to commence. This is a time of great solemnity, followed by celebration. We use two calendars, one that marks 260 days as a ritual year, intertwined with one that marks 365 actual days. The two calendars only meet on the same day and the same month every 52 years, and the eve of that alignment calls for fasting and priestly ceremonies to begin the new cycle. It is said that no man knows if the sun will actually rise on New Year, but we must be ready. Earlier today, we cast out our hearthstones and cooking utensils, even our old clothes, for the spirits cannot protect us if we are using items from the previous life cycle. Our inanimate objects must be received in the new life cycle and accompanied by the proper dedication ritual for them to be protected. Hey, it might be magic, but there are rules, you know. The women who are with child are painted blue and locked in a granary so they do not turn into demons in the night. The men were washed, anointed, and painted red so that they may participate in the fire ceremony. All of the fires were extinguished in the homes, public places, and even the temples. No fires could remain lit during this sacred time. The priests were dressed in full regalia with headdresses, masks, and their finest garb. They would be led by the figure of Kukulkan, the feathered serpent, during this ceremony. The statues of the gods were washed and ceremonially cleansed, and the celebration space was purified in anticipation of the big moment. There is also a captured enemy warrior tied to the altar, and he is not there for decoration. Oh yes, a lot of preparation goes into this evening. It has to be right or the gods will be angry. But now the moment has come. The stars are in alignment and the priests must act quickly. In the moonlight, the glint of obsidian catches your eye as you watch the priest cut open the warrior's chest and expertly remove his heart. The priest then builds a fire in the chest cavity of the sacrificed man, who is still conscious, though he won't be for much longer. Now the men painted in red must take these fires to the homes and temples to relight the sacred fires, and a giant bonfire is lit in the city. Everyone in the gathering must cut themselves, usually on the ear, to produce blood, smear it on some bark and toss it into the fire as their offerings to the god. Now. With the fires relit, and the sacrifices offered, and a new life cycle ensured, the feasting may begin. There's plenty of food featuring corn and meats and lots of alcohol called balche, along with peyote and tobacco. Alcohol and peyote were a way to attain an intense trance-like state so as to commune with the other world and become like a god. Some would take part in a ritual enema of alcohol to get drunker faster as alcohol is absorbed much more readily from the intestines than from the stomach. But you and I, we're just going to stick to the traditional way and drink ourselves silly until sunrise. Yes, the new life cycle is here, and we helped usher it in. We will likely not see this celebration again in our lifetimes, so let us celebrate with great fervor and be confident that we have the blessings of the gods. The Maya Classic Period from 250 AD to 900 AD, the city of Copan. Evidence for settlement at Copan can be traced back to the 15th century BC, and I'm sure you're thinking, hey, 
That's way before the Classic period, and you would be right. It took a little while for Copan's rubber to meet the road, as it were, but once it did in 426 AD, it would enjoy a string of luck consisting of 16 highly competent and uninterrupted rulers until 822 AD. Indeed, it took a long time for their metaphorical ship to come in, but like so many cities, they learned what a cruel mistress luck can be. One person who would argue the lucky part would be Washaklahun Uba Kawil, whose name translates to 18 Rabbit, and I think you can guess which name I'm going to go with from here on out. He was the 13th of these 16 rulers, and he ruled for better than 40 years until he was captured by a neighboring city and sacrificed. It seems 18 Rabbit did not quite have enough rabbit's feet to protect him from that misfortune. Another ruler who would argue against the lucky aspect would be the last of Copan's ruler, Ukit Tuk. In a line of 16 exceptional rulers, Ukit was number 17. Finally, someone I can identify with. Honestly, if this were Star Trek, he would definitely be the fourth man in the landing crew. On February 6th, 822 AD, Ukit Tuk ascended to the throne and things were looking pretty shabby. Droughts had become a persistent problem again, and resources had always been tricky to manage. With the droughts came malnutrition, and with malnutrition, that led to disease, sickness, and death, which eroded trade, and finally, in 830 AD, Copan met with a hard stop in what looks like a revolt, and the city shows signs of being burnt at the end. At its peak, the city probably had close to 30,000 people, and by the time it collapsed, it was down to just a couple thousand. Copan did not have any major enemies to worry about, as they were tucked away in the mountain region of what today is called Western Honduras. That places them at the southeastern periphery of the greater Mayan world, so they were far from many of the powers that threatened many of the other cities, and they seem to have liked it that way, as they called Copan home for over 2,300 years. But they're all mine, they say. They're all united, you say. Wouldn't it be better to be closer to your kinsmen? Well, not so much. It's important to note that the Maya, regardless of the time period, were definitely not under the same banner. It was a collection of individual states that would frequently trade with, be influenced by, and war with each other depending on their mood. It would be like if the United States didn't have a federal government, and each state and its people adopted its own sense of identity and exceptionalism in an attempt to dominate and influence their neighboring states. I know, with the current state of politics being highly polarized in the U.S., it seems like we're not far away from what I just described, but the divides in America do not rise to the level of the Mayan world. Now, if California invades Texas and sacrifices 30,000 of their inhabitants, well, then we'll have something to talk about. Also, like so many of these ancient cities, if you asked a Mayan person in 600 AD for directions to Copan, they wouldn't have any idea what you were talking about. They might have heard of Auschwitz, which is what we think the ancient name for Copan was, but we don't know what that means, and we don't know if they used that name continuously throughout their existence. Though the city of Copan never had the misfortune of meeting the Spanish, they are named after a 16th century local chieftain that led an uprising against the Spanish occupation in 1530 AD. His name was Copan Calel, and while he was summarily crushed by the Spanish, his name forever became attached to the ruins of the city. 
Speaking of names, the great rulers of Copan had some awesome names, and I will be delighted to recount them for you. Now, as a preface, I'm a firm believer in recognizing my limitations and of not making a complete fool of myself. Therefore, I will recite only the translated version of the names in order of succession. So the first of these rulers is Great Son, First Quetzalmacaw, and he was installed in 426 AD. The name just cries out, go ahead and try to top that. The second great ruler is Great Son, which is slightly more humble. In these two instances, Sun is S-U-N, not S-O-N. Number three is an unknown name. Number four is Ku-Ish. There's no translation, but that's pretty easy to pronounce. Number five is another unknown name. Number six is Muyal Joel. No translation for that either. Number seven is Jaguar Mirror or Water Lily Jaguar. Number eight is Head on Earth. Number nine is Sok Lu. There's no translation, and he only ruled for two years, from 551 to 553. Number 10 is Moon Jaguar. I love that name. Number 11 is Smoke Serpent. Not bad. Number 12 is Smoke Jaguar or Smoke Crocodile Alligator. Number 13 is 18 Rabbit. Number 14 is Smoke Monkey. Number 15 is Smoke Shell or Smoke Squirrel. Number 16 is Yash Pak. No translation for that one. And number 17, of course, is Ukit Tuk at 822 AD. Now, if you throw out the two shortest reigns, you get an average of 26 years of rulership out of each of these kings. And that's certainly enough time to make a significant impact. Even more striking is that in reality, there are multiple rulers that were in power for 30 to 40 plus years. And that's enough to shape how generations of people live in the city. We know so much about Copan because we're closing in on about 200 years worth of on and off archeology span going on at the site. In 1839, Frederick Catherwood and John Lloyd Stevens discovered Copan amidst the Honduran jungle and together they began mapping the site. Now, I say discovered in the European sense where one takes credit for discovery when the natives knew the area existed all along. Anyway, Fred and John were so amazed by what they found, and the local government was so apathetic about the ruined city, that these men were able to buy the entire city ruins for $50. Imagine buying an entire city filled with priceless artifacts for $1,400 of today's dollars. I mean, I'd do it. The plan was to take all of the ruins and sell them to the United States Museums. Fortunately, that part of the plan didn't pan out. Let's take a look around the city and see what more we can understand about this great people. The Teotihuacan Influence The city of Copan finds itself, perhaps purposefully, in very relevant position to witness the Zenith Passage, which happens twice per year for those at lower latitudes, and is where the sun passes directly overhead. It may not sound that interesting, but it had religious importance to the Maya and to their system of calendrics. If you were to stick a pole in the ground during the passage, it would not cast a shadow due to the angle of the sun overhead. I can hear you. Again, who cares? Well, the Mayans certainly did, as the Zenith Passage coincides with their calendar system and divides the year into 260 days, which, if you recall, is also being tracked at the Temple of the Feathered Serpent in what city? That's right, our friends Teotihuacan. 
Teotihuacan also seems very interested in this Zenith Passage, and they sought to establish several cities along the Zenith Passage alignment. If you also recall, Teo built the Pyramid of the Sun, so they're pretty obsessed with solar events. They went no further than Copan, uh, which, who could blame them? The two sites are roughly 900 miles apart, and the Zenith Passage is not appreciable at higher latitudes. Teotihuacan did not conquer Copan in the military sense, but their cultural influence was such that the first of their great rulers of Copan may have been installed as a vassal to the Teotihuacan state. The DNA analysis shows that great son, first Quetzalmacaw, was not from the Copan area, but he was not from Teotihuacan either. He was royalty, but he could not get to the throne in Teo by bloodline and seems to have just been dropped into place at Copan. The imagery with which he is represented seems to support this idea, and the clincher is that we have his tomb. The tombs are interesting and can be found under the Acropolis, along with many other rulers who are buried there. The rulers were buried one atop the other throughout the years, creating a veritable time capsule of Copan's leadership. It's just a treasure trove of Copanese history. I know, I just made up the term Copanese, but the whole name's made up, so I really just granted myself a little of the same creative license that everybody else is using. Temple 16. The imagery found at Copan regarding great son, first Quetzalmacaw, is that of Tlaloc in his distinctive goggle eyes. Now, remember, Teo introduced him as the storm god. The building style used at the time is that of Tolud Tablero, and even the very name of great son, first Quetzalmacaw, uh, just screams Teotihuacan influence. I mean, if you only had five words to sum up Teotihuacan, you would stress the importance of the sun the importance of Quetzalcoatl, and the capstone being the importance of rulership, as signified by Seven Macaw. It is believed that First Quetzal was a warlord, and as a final gift to him, in his old age, Teotihuacan installed him as ruler of Copan. His wife was from the city of Copan, and that gave him relevance to the city, thus an easier transition of power. Temple 16 is a temple pyramid built at the highest part of the Acropolis that holds First Quetzal and his wife's earthly remains. Really, I should say it's a series of temples layered one atop the other, with the earliest being in that Tolude Tablero style. First Quetzal was found nearly 100 feet under the Acropolis, which makes sense because Oler is deeper in the layered burials. And his tomb has the goggle-eyed god Tlaloc, represented as looking out from the tomb, in a sense, guarding it. Incidentally, First Quetzal's wife is buried in the lair atop the great king, and was reportedly covered in 30,000 pieces of jade. The queen is found in the portion called the Margarita, which makes me thirsty just hearing it, but the best find is the small shrine called the Rosalila, located inside the monument. When the Copanese were done using it, they just buried it, which preserved the building very well in the thick brown clay of Honduras. The Rosalila is the last temple to be covered in stucco at roughly 550 AD, as the resources were already getting thin, and it required a lot of firewood to make fires that reached 1600 degrees Fahrenheit in a kiln to melt limestone into stucco. Dr. Edwin Barnhart, I know, 
He was on Ancient Aliens a few times, but in his defense, he probably needed the money at the time. Dr. Edwin Barnhart. He's the director of the Mayan Explore, Exploration Center in Austin, Texas, and he was part of the team that originally found this tomb. If you would like an in-depth and first-hand account of what all transpired at the discovery of this site, he's on Great Courses Plus, and I think also Amazon Prime. He has a show called Ancient Mesoamerica, so please check it out for further resource. Hieroglyphic Stairway. This is the longest Mayan text ever found at 2,200 characters long and carved in stone. This monument rises up almost 70 feet on the western side of Temple 10L-26, beginning at the courtyard area of the temple. I'm not going to bring up how much I hate these naming conventions. The inscriptions have been translated, and they related uh, the official history of Copan's rulers, so it's pretty darn important. Stelle A, B, C, D, F, H, and J, as well as the ball court, were all commissioned by our guy, 18 Rabbit, who was the 13th ruler, if you recall. He was ambushed by a weaker neighboring city and sacrificed by the people who took him captive. Since they were a weaker city, you probably think there was a heavy price to be paid for this despicable act. Well, these things can be complicated, and while the city itself was weaker, they were backed up by their big brother ally, who just happened to be the city of Kalakmul, and they were one of the superpowers of the era. So, Copan decided not to bicker over who killed who, and demonstrating an early version of the next man up philosophy, simply installed a new king. The stele are depictions of 18 Rabbit, and the ball court was his last, last gift to the city, and to us, before he met his fate. The stelae are also representative of the intricate craftsmanship of the Maya and their technical prowess. It's no wonder they like to honor the howler monkey god, who was the patron deity of writing, artisanry, and the arts. Altar Q. Commissioned by Yash Pak in 776, who was the last of the good ones, this square stone block depicts all 16 of the kings and is inscribed with hieroglyphs that highlight the founding of this dynasty as it began with First Quetzal. There are many other stele and monuments in Copan. This is by no means an exhaustive list. However, my little segment here is starting to run long, and we have to get 600 miles north to get to our next site at Chichen Itza. The takeaway from Copan is that they had an excellent string of rulers that led these people through almost four centuries of monument building and cultural achievements, starting with First Quetzal. Also, Mr. Quetzal was a legend and revered across the centuries by the people and subsequent leaders of Copan for being the founder of this glorious era. Overall, it's a pretty positive story, and we need all of those we can get. Now, let's back up our things and get to the next site. Chichen Itza, from 830 AD to 1224 AD. By simple name recognition alone, Chichen Itza is probably the best-known site by the general public with tourism hovering around $1.5 million per year and average ticket sales being about $50 per person, she's pretty lucrative too. Classified by UNESCO in 1988 as a World Heritage Site and later in 2007 as one of the new Seven Wonders of the World, Chichen Itza is translated as the mouth at the well of the water magicians. 
I'm sure in ancient Mayan, the meaning was far more eloquent and meaningful than this brutish translation, but this is the translation we have to work with today. I wonder what the other six wonders are and their average price per person. Oh, look, I have it right here. We have Machu Picchu and Peru. It's at $45. The Great Wall of China is a bargain at $15. Petra in Jordan is $70. The Taj Mahal in India, $45. The Colosseum of Rome, another bargain at $20. And the Cristo Redentor in Brazil is $46. So start planning your summer vacation now, I guess. Chichen Itza is located in the northern east northeastern part of the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, where the water systems exist underground. There are multiple cenotes. Those are the freshwater-filled sinkholes we talked about in a previous episode. They're near the city, and they provide ample water. There's also a hidden cenote that is directly in the city, but we'll talk about that in a few moments. Funny thing about cenotes, the Maya were very conscious of their water supply, and if the precious commodity was becoming scarce, they were not timid about sacrificing a few people and dumping them in the cenote along with a few treasures like jade necklaces just to make sure the water god Chalk was happy enough to refill the cenote. As a sidebar, Chalk is loosely equivalent to the Teotihuacan storm god and the later Aztec version called Tlaloc, as they are all water, rain, storm deities. This style of sacrifice is evidenced by human remains and treasure being found at the bottom of cenotes, some of whom were arranged in a meaningful and likely ceremonious kind of way. I presume whatever cenote they sacrificed in was probably not drank from for some time after the sacrifice, and they would supplement from other cenotes until nature had a chance to remove the human pollutants. Now, let's get away from this grisly business and see some of the sights, shall we? Quick disclaimer, this is not an exhaustive list, just some of the sites that I find interesting. Since there are several of them, and they exist in two distinct areas, one to the north and one to the south, we'll get our bearings with one building in each area, and then describe where each site is located in relation to that one building, beginning with the northern area first. This is where the companion website can be very helpful, as I have a map of Chichen Itza posted. The web address is www.mesoplus.net. That's www.mesoplus.net. Then just click on the Maya Classic Era, and, well, you've probably navigated a website before, so I'm sure you'll know what to do once you get there. The Temple of Kukulkan. As you enter from the west, your eyes will undoubtedly be drawn to the massive Temple of Kukulkan to the north, which will be our first reference point for the first area. It is also called El Castillo, but I prefer the Mesoamerican naming convention over the Spanish, and to me it just seems more respectful, so I try to use only the Mesoamerican terms where I can. Because you are a loyal listener, you know that Kukulkan is the feathered serpent, and your sharp mind immediately notices that the pyramid is built in that Talud style, culminating in a flat-top, 20-foot temple at the top. Any guesses on what people influenced this structure? Well, technically the Toltec, but they drew their inspiration from Teotihuacan, so either answer is equally valid in my eyes. The pyramid plus the temple at the top stands a total of 120 feet tall and is 181 feet wide at its base. The four sides of the pyramid feature stairways to get to the temple, and added together, there are 365 steps, which, obviously, is equal to the number of days in a year, and undoubtedly had some ritual significance. 
The temple was used exclusively by priests, and the height is thought to have aided their proximity to the gods. Inside the temple is a statue and a throne in the shape of a jaguar painted red and decorated with jade. The statue is called Chakmul, but that's literally a made-up name by a guy who said he saw it in a dream the night before it was discovered. Also, Chakmul is more of a thing than a person. It is used to describe any image or statue of a reclining man with a head covering, a turned head, and a semi-startled look that, to me, seems to say, Oh, when did you get here? This pyramid is built centered between four cenotes that align with the cardinal directions and is centered over a cenote of its own. This is the hidden cenote I was referring to earlier, and what would a Mesoamerican pyramid temple be without some human remains lying about, eh? In two separate sections, found in two separate years, there have been found human remains and jewelry arranged inside the temple as an offering. Another Chakmul statue turned up as well, with his eyes, teeth, and nails covered in mother of pearl. In the cenote directly under the pyramid, there is more evidence of sacrificed humans and jewelry made from jade, copper, and gold. Looking at it from a Mesoamerican religious perspective, the temple could be seen as uniting the underworld, our world, and the heavens together. There is a fun feature that I've associated with the temple, and you can as well, on YouTube that videos of people standing at the base of the pyramid, and with a single loud clap from their hands, they create an echo that comes from the temple at the top and returns to the ears as a bird chirp. It's a fun and interactive experience that, to me, holds some meaning. We can imagine a crowd outside the temple witnessing a religious ceremony and offering applause that they would hear echoed back as Quetzal bird chirps kind of like the god is speaking back to you in a very real sort of way. Indeed, the audio of the claps do resemble the audio of the Quetzalbird's strain chirps. I asked a friend who had been to the site if that was really a thing, and she said, yes, but it is kind of a stretch. Stretch though it may be, it seems to be an intentional piece of the design of the temple, and to me, it demonstrates the innovative and well-thought-out sense of ceremony and engineering during this time period. The Temple of the Warriors To the east of the Temple of Kukulkan is the Temple of the Warriors. It is full of carvings and murals of jaguars eating hearts, and eagle and coyote warriors very similar to the ones found in Teotihuacan at Atatelco. There is a colonnade of what is called a thousand columns that is part of a complex that runs east, then north, then east again as it flanks the southern end of the Temple of the Warriors. The columns are carved and depict warriors carrying atlatls and battle scenes, hello Teotihuacan, as well as some more of those Chakmul statues. Back in the day, the columns would have been topped in some manner, thereby creating a ceiling for the colonnade, undoubtedly with a Teotihuacan-style flat-top roof. The Teotihuacan influence did not entertain the practicality of this city being in a rainforest, and that flat roofs are completely unhelpful, when your chief concern is draining excessive amounts of water away from your buildings. Since the Teos and the Toltecs were not rainforest people, they either didn't get it or they just didn't care. The platforms of the skull, 
the Eagle, and Venus. Moving westward from the Warrior Temple, you pass the northern side of Kukulkan and then run smack into three platforms. The platform of Venus is first, then the platform of the Skulls, and then the platform of the Jaguars and the Eagles. Remember Venus from Teotihuacan. He is part of the imagery for the Venus Tlaloc warriors, who, and he is a war god who attacked the sun. The platform of the skulls has numerous skulls carved into a stone block uh, with spears piercing vertically through their heads. The same imagery would be found at the Aztec capital Tenochtitlan centuries later by the Spanish. And the platform of the eagle and jaguar also have to do with warriors and are the precursors to the Aztec warrior class of the same distinction. The Grand Ball Court Continuing in our westward trek, we run into the biggest ball court ever built in the Mesoamerican world, with temples at both ends. The ball court is filled with death imagery, and as we already know, that makes sense because ball courts are seen as being related to the underworld. There are depictions of people with severed heads and snakes coming out of their headless bodies, as well as skulls being used as balls for the game. The court itself is 550 feet long by 230 feet wide, making it much larger than a modern-day football field. The temple at the north end is the Temple of the Bearded Man that has the image of a bearded man, and we don't really know much about it. It's smaller, it's 34 feet by 20 feet, and simply features a single room with a vaulted roof. There are flagstones decorated with trees, butterflies, birds, and an image of Kukulkan emerging from the jaws of a serpent. The southern end features two temples of the jaguars, consisting of an upper and a lower. The upper temple has two large columns with feathered serpents, and on the inside features a mural of what seems to be a battle scene, though it is quite damaged by time and the elements. The lower temple has another jaguar throne similar to the temple of Kukulkan, and bas-relief carvings throughout the interior depicting warriors with atlatls, headdresses of feathers, and what looks like butterfly chest plates. Remember the temple of the feathered butterfly at Teo? If my illustrative language does not seem to be doing it for you, please go to MayanPeninsula.com for some outstanding pics of this temple and others at Chichen Itza, including a 360-degree depiction of the ball court. The Observatory Now that we've seen uh, largely the north side of the site, which is richly influenced by Teotihuacan imagery, I will visit just one site at the southern end because we've got some Mayan math to do in my last segment, and there's not a ton of information on the other buildings anyway. The southern end of Chichen Itza is all Mayan-style buildings that are only cursorily mentioned in the books and websites I've read, which indicates to me that we don't have enough material to make a good segment out of them individually, but we can cover them as a group. Some of the structures are the ossuary, there's nine skeletal remains and jewelry in the structure. They are not believed to be priests, but they are arranged specifically so they had a purpose at one time. The Temple of the Deer. It's basically a crumbled mess that needs renovation. The Red House. It might have been an elite residence, but again, we're not really sure. The Nunnery, which is an administrative building that just happened to look like a nunnery to the Spanish, so that's what they called it and the House of Mysterious Writing. That last one has really got a great name, but it was home to the administrator of Chichen Itza, and there are some carvings on the post and lentil of the doorway that are deemed mysterious. 
From what I can tell, it's really just a flat house with an excessive number of rooms in it for the size. But hey, I appreciate the marketing effort here. The former name was literally Structure 4D-1. Not very compelling. The observatory is where we'll settle, and it's as beautiful as it is ancient. Built over 1,100 years ago, the observatory looks like uh, every bit like a modern-day observatory, complete with a domed area for watching and tracking celestial events. Of the 29 astrological events that captivated the Mayan people, 20 of those events could be seen at the observatory. The Spanish named it El Caracol, which means the snail, because of the winding spiral staircase that is located within the structure. The cylindrical and domed observation area is set upon a base that elevates the building so stargazing could be experienced with an unobstructed view. In total, the building stands a little over 70 feet tall, and sadly, there are no telescopes or other instruments found at the site. The building was, however, consciously aligned with the path of Venus in the sky, as well as the summer and winter solstices. This could aid in the planning of religious festivals, farming, general weather forecasting, and it would predict eclipses. Remember, Venus is the war god that attacked the sun and is important to Teotihuacan's warrior imagery. The Maya are also believed to have tracked the changing positions of Venus to plan appropriate times for raids and battles. With the sights at Chichen Itza covered, it's time for us to leave and take a little snooze on the tour bus back to the hotel. The hot sun has got us all a little overtired, but nothing a little nap and shower won't fix. When you're ready, grab a refreshment and prepare yourself to briefly look at the Mayan mathematical system. Welcome to the Mayan math party. Here's what you'll need. A grid pattern, a shell or flower, either is acceptable, a few pebbles and a few sticks. Ready? Oh, and we'll be working in powers of 20 instead of the powers of 10 that you're used to. It'll be easy once you catch on, but it does require an adjustment. The grid pattern is for number placement. So let's just start with a column of three to get started. And if you don't have shells, sticks, and pebbles at your disposal, just draw a flower. Use a dot for pebbles and a horizontal bar for the sticks. Now in our column of three blocks, the bottom block will be the ones place. The middle block will be the twenties column and the top block will be the four hundreds block. The more blocks you add, the greater the power of 20. So we are stopping at 20 to the second power, but if you added another block, it would be 20 to the third power, or the eight thousands place, and so on for each additional block. The shell or flower will represent zero, the dots represent one, and the horizontal bars represent five. Just loosely think of the Roman I and V if that helps. The bottom block is the ones column, so we can count to a maximum of 19 in that block before having to add a second block, uh, as the second block represents the 20s position. So in this example, 19 would be written with three horizontal bars and four dots atop them. That's three sets of five plus four individual dots. If you want the number 20, you would add a block atop the ones block, place one dot in that block, and then put your shell or your flower in the ones position to signify zero ones. You want 40? Well, that's two dots in the 20 box and a flower or shell in the ones. 
You want 46? Well, that's two dots in the 20s block. That gives you 40. And in the ones block, you need one bar and one dot atop that bar to give you five and one respectively. So two 20s plus a five plus a one equals 46. If you're a more visual person, now would be a fantastic time to go to www.mezoplus.net and look at the corresponding examples I have generously provided. Now, now that we can represent a basic number 46, let's add 21 to it. In the Mayan equation, you would make three columns, one for each number you're working with, and two rows. Next, write 46 in the first column, as we did previously, then write 21 in the second column. That's one dot in the 20s block and one dot in the ones block. Then just add the numbers across the corresponding rows, placing the sum in the third column. Now in the third column, you should have three dots in the second block, which is 60, and a bar with two dots above it, which is seven, to make the sum of 67. Did everyone get that answer? It's pretty easy, right? Technically, the answer should not be within the original grid. I just use that third column as a teaching tool. It makes it easier to learn. But what they, the Mayans actually did was put it outside of the grid pattern, and they didn't use blocks. It's just the blocks are easier to, uh, to correspond the 1s, 20s, and 400s. Also, no ancient Mayan is going to be checking up on you, so you can improvise a little bit without any consequence. Moving on to subtraction, subtraction is just as easy. Let's use the same setup of 46 this time, but we'll, and we'll take away 21. So make your three column setup with two rows and fill in the 46 and 21 numbers as we did in the previous example. Once you are done with that, just subtract across the rows. So the 20s position, we take the two dots and subtract the one dot in the row uh, next to it to give us one dot in the 20s row, or simply the number 20. Then do the same with the ones row, which a bar and a dot minus a dot equals to simply a bar, or 5. So we see that 46 minus 21 equals 25. Carrying the 1. All right, now let's test ourselves and add another degree of difficulty and add 421 plus 179 equaling 600. Our first column will have one dot in each block. That's 400 plus 20 plus one. So one dot in each block of that first column. The second column will start at the top with the shell symbol, which is zero in the 400s block. A bar with three dots on top in the 20s block, that's 160, and three bars with four dots on top of the ones block, 19, which gives us a total of 179. Now, when we add this together, start at the bottom like you would with our math, and you'll see right away that by adding a dot, you go over your limit of 19 for the ones block, and you need to move the number to the 20s row. Draw a shell or flower in the ones block to signify zero ones, and carry that one up to the 20s position and represent it by one dot. Now you will see that adding these together maxes out your dot limit for the 20s place. So you now have to have five dots and you can only have a max of four dots before it becomes a bar. 
So add those together and represent the number as two bars in the twenties row, which gives you 200. That's 10 times 20, 200. Lastly, place one dot in the four hundreds row because one dot plus zero is one to give you 400. So you have one dot for 400, two bars for 10 twenties, and zero ones that's represented by that shell or flower, that will give you 600. It's eloquent and it's simple, and it was a method that could also be used as hand gestures, though there's no proof of this that they actually used hand gestures to represent numbers. We can imagine that the Maya might have used fingers held horizontal as the bars and fingers held vertically above the bars as ones. Multiplication and division methods are unknown, but scholars have tried to devise ways to demonstrate it in the grid pattern the Mayans used for other arithmetic. It's all guesswork, and it's quite complicated, with the equation being worked at a diagonal in the grid system. While we know the Mayans were capable of higher mathematics, and the use of zero uh, was a major clue to that, we don't know what that higher mathematics looked like or how it was developed. The concept of zero is not a common thing, and we believe the Mayans were possibly the first civilization with a real grasp of zero. Yes, the Babylonians had zero, but they never put it in the ones column, so 150 and 1500 would look identical. Imagine the confusion there must have been. Imagine your paycheck supposed to be $1,500 that week, and it was only 150 One would think that there was some way to remedy that, but with the many clay tablets we have found from the Babylonians, none of them give us an answer to this issue. Surely the Egyptians and the Romans had zero. They were both highly advanced, right? Well, unfortunately, you're only half right. They were advanced, but they did not use zero. They used proportions to measure, and since everything they used math for had a concrete purpose, zero wasn't really a concept. Why would you need a placeholder for nothingness when you are constructing or mapping that which is something? If necessity was the mother of invention, zero was an orphan, as were fractions. We have no examples of the Maya using any sorts of fractions. Another interesting feature is that the Maya didn't have a plus or minus sign and no equal sign either. The only way you could tell if the person writing had added or subtracted was to decipher the numbers. If the answer was greater than the two numbers by themselves, then it's addition. If the answer is smaller than the largest number, then it's subtraction. Sadly, we don't have any of the Mayan everyday calculations because they used a bark paper to write on, and it doesn't really last without careful preservation. We do possess a few examples of math from the Maya cut into stone, that's how we know how to add and subtract, but the rest was lost to the ravages of time, and especially the ravages of the Spanish, who gathered many codices and books to be burned on July 12, 1562, because they were full of blasphemy, according to the Christian faith. Those codices were the history and learning of the Maya, preserved for centuries and passed down from one generation to the next. We'll never know what or how much was lost, but one Franciscan friar named Diego de Landa recounted with complete aloofness the surprise he experienced at how aggrieved the natives were when their books and codices were forever destroyed by him. Almost like a, can't they see what a great favor I've done for them kind of tone? 
Some historians have compared the loss to the burning of the Great Library of Alexandria that was also a victim of Christian zealotry. We'll never know what those minds knew, felt, or believed, except for what we can cobble together from the wreckage caused by the European invaders. Luckily for us, three of the codices were smuggled out and are now housed at museums across the world. The three known Mayan codices surviving to this day include the Madrid Codex, the Paris Codex, and the Dresden Codex. Please join me again on Mesoamericana Plus, where we will continue our discussion of the Maya, with our focus now shifting to the post-classic period, and we'll take a look at the Mayan calendar, which is as intricate as it is accurate. Please stop by the website at mesoplus.net and check out the corresponding posts for this podcast. While you are there, please drop some coin in the donation box if you can at paypal.me slash mesoplus so I can continue to make this podcast. Also, thank you to those who have already donated. You may have noticed that I used the funds to upgrade the audio for this show, so there's some ROI for you right there. Thank you for listening, 